0: Welcome back to Episode 9 of The Conspiracy Skeptic, a 12-part Not-Dead-Yet series on conspiracy theories of today and the not-too-distant past. I'm your Not-Dead-Yet Conspiracy Skeptic, Carl Mamer. Yes, it's been a while since the last episode. Uh, I apologize, and thank you for the kind emails encouraging me to continue. The airdrops of food in Tim Horton's maple-glazed Boston Cream Donuts also helped. I moved to a new city and started a new job, so that's my excuse for this semi hiatus. Well, on with the conspiracy. I heard a wonderful debate brought to my attention by a blogger known by the Numb de Guerre ERV, aka Abby Smith. Abby is a grad student researching ERVs or endogenous retroviruses. HIV, the virus that causes AIDS, is a retrovirus. She follows the HIV denialist meme, and she blogs about it from time to time. Anyway, this debate, conducted on some weird alternative medicine-themed AM radio show, two HIV denialists went at each other like a couple street bums fighting over the last swig of night train. If you follow the creationism debate, where creationists seem to live under a big happy tent with anyone, as long as they have a perceived gap in evolution to add to the buffet table, it was somewhat refreshing to hear one denier attacking another denier in really vicious terms. I'll link to the debate on the website www.yrad.com CS. But suffice it to say, when you're used to Mooney Jonathan Wells, Catholic Abihi, Muslim Harun Yahya, and fundamentalist Ken Ham all singing Kumbaya together, without a hint that at some fundamental level the other three are dead wrong, it's kind of nice to hear two HIV denier camps slugging it out. Did I say two camps? As best I can figure, there are three denier camps. The first camp is Peter Duisburg, who was one of the radio show debaters. Duisberg is pretty much mental patient zero in the denial world. Duisberg contends HIV exists, but it, along with all other retroviruses, is harmless. The other debater, who represents Camp 2, was a dentist by the name of Lenny Horowitz. The aforementioned Abby Smith debated Lenny on an episode of the Infidel Guy. I'll post up a link to that debate. Anyway, Lenny believes that not only is he a descendant of Jesus and Moses, but HIV exists and HIV causes AIDS. So, what's the problem? Aside from all that I am the son of God stuff, Sounds pretty rational, no? Well, Horowitz believes HIV was cooked up in a biowarfare lab. Even better, Peter Duesberg, the guy he was debating, was responsible. Oh boy, them's his fighting words. And the third camp is the so-called Perth Group, I guess named after some scientists in Perth. That, that's in Australia. They do not believe HIV even exists, and they will tell you straight to your face, HIV has never been isolated. So if you're not squatting in Lenny Horwitz's camp, you're asking yourself, what actually causes AIDS? Well, Duesberg believes, roughly, that AIDS victims are to blame. In Duesberg's famous words, it's caused by lifestyles that were considered criminal a few decades ago. They live a degenerate lifestyle and have run their immune systems to the ground what with having sex with 3,000 different men a year and doing all kinds of drugs. Duisberg was, ironically, the toast of the gay community for a brief time when they perceived him as merely an anti-big pharma golden child, but then he started shooting his mouth off that homosexuals brought it upon themselves. The Perth group seems to believe toxins in the environment and food and HIV meds themselves are what causes AIDS. Actually, all three groups are at least unanimous on the latter point that anti-AIDS drugs like AZT are what result in AIDS symptoms. And here's a good jumping-off point in terms of AIDS conspiracies. AIDS is just a conspiracy of big pharma to sell more drugs. Where have we heard that before? See, as Duesberg will tell you, back in the 1960s and 1970s, he was working on a theory that retroviruses cause cancer. See, a retrovirus gets into your cell's genome and rewires part of your DNA. Since a lot of cancers can be caused by screwed-up DNA, it seemed logical. Duesberg concluded, after a couple decades of research, that no retrovirus could ever do enough harm to our DNA to cause it to grow out of control. He and many other denialists figure all the money Big Pharma spent on drugs to fight undiscovered cancer-causing retroviruses needed to be recouped. So, Big Pharma simply collected together a bunch of nebulous symptoms and called it AIDS and then sold you AZT. Now, I guess for a guy that's a pretty hard sell on the HIV causes AIDS story, it would be somewhat pointless to convince him he's out in left field by his holding the position in 2008 that viruses do not cause cancer. They really do. Recall the vaccine that recently came out that vaccinates one against the human Pamplona virus, which is known to cause cancer. The Horowitz camp goes a step further and believes the military, the CIA, Big Pharma, Biowarfare Corporations, Eugenic Types, and of course the reverse vampires and trekkies, have hatched a massive conspiracy to create HIV infect the so-called useless eaters of the world, and, of course, line their pockets by selling you expensive drugs. It's a bit like the guy who sells tires and then goes around at night puncturing tires. Even better, Horowitz claims Duisburg himself is a ringleader of all of this. The Perth group is probably the nuttiest out of the bunch and shares a lot in common with the moon hoax crowd. See, the moon hoax crowd will look at all the photos and rock samples from the moon shots and then tell you straight to your face man has never walked on the moon. All the evidence? Pure fabrication. The Perth group will look at all the photos of HIV and the dozens and dozens of peer-reviewed scientific papers on HIV isolation and genetic sequencing of the virus and tell you straight to your face HIV has never been proven to exist. Gulp. The ringleader of the Perth group is Eleni Papadopoulos Elopoulos, A name that makes Alex Tsakaris seem like it rolls off the tongue. I'll just call her Pappy. Anyway, Pappy has a Bachelor of Science in Nuclear Physics and worked as a medical technician at a hospital in Perth. Hence the term Perth Group. This non-virologist has appointed herself an expert on the proper method for isolating a virus. She claims HIV has never been isolated by her goalpost, although oddly, if you go to the wiki page on HIV, there's a bloody photograph of it right there, courtesy of the CDC in Atlanta. Of course, as one HIV denier pointed out to me in a debate, the CDC is part of the American government. Since they lied to us about Iraq, then it's not hard to believe the CDC has lied to us about this photograph and all the other stuff it has about HIV isolation. By this rationale, since the government lied about Iraq, It's perfectly fine to believe the government lied about the names of your parents on your birth certificate. I asked my personal denier friend uh, why nature or scientists in Canada or France or China haven't called out the CDC on this apparent fabrication. He retorted that science is conducted by sheep-like people and no one questions anything. I find this hard to believe. If scientists were such mindless lemmings, How could science have advanced so far in such a short period of time? That he's using a computer to post his blather seems to me concrete evidence. Science is run by some pretty forward-thinking people, and it's not a bunch of f... Actually, I was going to swear there. I kind of promised one listener I wouldn't swear as much. it's not a bunch of uh, yahoos, all tripping over their own lab coats, waiting to cash-grant checks. The denier's claim hits all of what I call the DeAngelis Novella Postulates, named after uh, SGU's hosts Perry DeAngelis and Dr. Steven Novella. The uh, DeAngelis Novella Postulates outline the three key features of a conspiracy. One, The conspiracy is run by evil people. Who have incredible access to power and technology, and yet sometimes make mistakes so elementary a 50-year-old guy with a BA teaching English to 8-year-olds in Korea can figure it all out. 2. The conspiracy is unwittingly maintained by the vast majority of sheeple, people content to keep their heads down and be led like lambs to the slaughter. 3. The conspiracy is opposed by the Army of Light a noble band of people who have swallowed the red pill. Or was it the blue pill? Anyway, it is the sacred duty of the Army of Light to expose the conspiracy. So, another odd thing is if HIV has not been isolated, why can you find its sequenced genetic code widely available on websites all around the globe? How do they sequence a virus they haven't been able to isolate? This is literally like someone denying the sun is yellow. When you point out that you can see with your own eyes it's yellow, he tells you there's a big conspiracy to hide the sun's true color from you. Many HIV deniers, who sail a course similar to that of the Perth group and deny HIV exists or it's harmless, will claim HIV has never fulfilled the Koch's postulates. Uh, n- not to be confused with the aforementioned De Angelis novella postulates. I guess maybe this is where I took my inspiration. Anyway, this uh, HIV has never fulfilled the Koch's postulates is a claim you'll hear a lot. HIV has never fulfilled the postulates, therefore one can make no legitimate claim HIV is either real or causes AIDS. Koch's postulates were formulated in the 19th century before viruses were discovered. Koch's postulates basically say a causative microbe needs to fulfill four criteria before you can say the microbe causes the disease. Actually, one of the postulates merely says it should be fulfilled, uh, not must. Suffice it to say, nature rarely keeps neatly to our classifications for it. Just as there are many exceptions to whatever rule we apply to what is a species or what is a planet, there are always exceptions. In this case, there are many well-known uncontroversial viruses like hep C and polio that don't fulfill all four. As well, some germs like cholera or typhoids have asymptomatic carriers, which breaks the postulates. However, the vast scientific consensus is HIV has fulfilled Koch's postulates. I'll post a link on the website. As noted previously, all three camps agree on one thing, antiretroviral drugs like AZT are the cause, or the partial cause, of AIDS symptoms. Now let's back up a second here and make a distinction between HIV and AIDS. HIV does not technically kill you. HIV destroys your immune system. Assuming you don't get cancer and live in a germ-free Brady Bunch home, you might well be able to live without a great immune system. You know, kind of like those Roman space aliens without immune systems from Star Trek that made Kerr connect with Ohura. What kills you are any number of things that result from having a floundering immune system. Infections, cancer, etc. What HIV does, if you happen to believe 99.9% of virologists out there, is invade your T-cells and uses those cells to make copies of itself killing the cells in the process. The T cells are part of your immune system, and you kind of don't want anything using them as their party crib. And since HIV is a virus, you can't use antibiotics to kill it. Antibiotics only work on bacteria. So, one of your only lines of defense are drugs called antiretroviral drugs. These drugs do one of two things. They keep HIV from getting into a cell in the first place, or keep HIV from getting out of the cell. These drugs confuse the mechanism by which the virus can attach to the cell wall and dig through or dig out. Of course, thanks to evolution, eventually the HIV virus mutates, and it's no longer confused by the antiviral drugs. It's a bit like phasers against the Borg, they only work for so long before the Borg figure out the field harmonics or whatever. Right, so these antiretrovirals aren't without side effects. We worry a lot about there being no new antibiotics on the horizon. The thing is, there are lots of antibiotics out there. However, most of them kill human cells as quickly and as happily as they kill bacterial cells. The trick is finding an antibiotic that kills bacteria way, way better than human cells. So same deal with antiretrovirals. What interferes with the virus getting in and out of a cell can also interfere with the highly useful things that need to get in and out of a cell. Their side effects aren't very pretty and can make you feel pretty sick. To quote Joseph Sonabend, a former AIDS denialist who has changed his tune, quote, The evidence now strongly supports a role for HIV. Drugs that can save your life can also, under different circumstances, kill you. This is a distinction the denialists do not seem to understand. The problem then with claiming AZT and other retroviral drugs causes AIDS is, as we are all aware, there are thousands of people dying from AIDS in the third world who have never taken any antiretroviral drugs. Another silly claim you hear from AIDS denialists is the original definition of AIDS is not the same as the current definition. For example, they ask, why are so many so-called AIDS sufferers dying of liver disease when 20 years ago that was never diagnostic of an AIDS death? The fallacy here is the unstated premise that science never changes its definition of anything. Well, it's a good thing we have changed and modified our ideas about, say, cancer as evidence emerges. Imagine if science still thought cancer was being caused by homunculuses or whatever. Coming back to the creationists, they always seem to take a lot of joy in pointing out where Darwin got it wrong, as if Origin of Species is a holy book and contains truths that can never be contradicted. Since creationists have bet the farm on their book being 100% literally true and would be, to say the least, embarrassed if the Bible had to undergo revision every few years, science must be the same way in their minds. Anyway, I'm not sure what the liver disease point is, but consider HIV patients are living a lot longer now. It's not surprising at all we'll discover living longer with HIV has additional consequences. The Hurwitz camp that believes HIV is a biowarfare invention cooked up to kill off useless eaters and social undesirables point to the HIV's odd epidemiology. Epidemiology is a fancy word for who is getting what and how. HIV deniers like to make the claim HIV is a gay disease in the West but a straight disease in Africa. In other words, in the West it's largely gays and druggies who are at risk, but in Africa it's ostensibly heterosexuals. The denier's point is, of course, predicated on the false dichotomy fallacy. AIDS is not a gay versus straight disease. It's a blood disease. Any contact with HIV-infected blood, and to a lesser extent other bodily fluids, puts one at higher risk. The deniers try to argue while anal sex, uh, popularly known as doing it freaky style, carries a higher risk than a penile vaginal sex, uh, heretofore known by the more grown-up term getting some yee So, the deniers claim HIV has this unique epidemiology that defies explanation. Since it seems odd that Straight Africans practicing getting some yeehaw sex are at greater risk than Westerners practicing getting some yeehaw sex. Since I gather no other disease attacks one population one way in one part of the world and another population in another way in another part of the world, uh, this has to be a bioengineered virus. That's their logic. Let me use an analogy. I'm a former teacher. While teaching, I got a cold virus every month, while my non-teaching friends maybe caught a cold a couple times a year. Lucky bastards. Is the cold virus then a nefarious plan by these students to make the lives of their teachers miserable? No. As compared to the general population, teachers just come in contact with far more miniature virus distribution factories, uh, known as children to their parents. The problem with this false dichotomy is it ignores a lot. First, straight people don't have anal sex. I mean, uh, straight people don't do it freaky style, and different cultures don't do it freaky style to a greater or lesser degree. Now, maybe I'm not meeting the right kind of ladies, but it's usually the custom in the west that the guy proposes doing it freaky style, and the girlfriend either agrees reluctantly if it's evidence there will be a new purse involved, or she just simply says no in no uncertain terms. Since we'd still like to keep putting it in her other warm places, we leave it at that. No harm, no foul. And maybe the next GF won't be so damn frigid. However, in more traditional societies, as found in Africa, where a woman might not feel like she can refuse any sexual request, It's not unreasonable to suspect there's a lot more straight people doing it freaky style. Let's face it, Africa is not exactly a continent at peace. Rape, warfare, limbs being hacked off, the continent seems rather awash in blood. Finally, as evidenced by the case of the nurses in Libya, poor sanitary conditions in hospitals can result in further infections. Then add in unsanitary mortuary conditions and unsanitary practices involving scarification, piercing, and tattooing. And it's no surprise, HIV has a very different epidemiology, you know, who gets it and how, in Africa than it does in North America, where armies are not hacking and raping their way through Minnesota, or so I'm told. About the only HIV conspiracy that got any real traction was the claim that an oral polio vaccine developed by Hilary Kaprowski in the 1960s was responsible for the spread of HIV. The claim goes like this. A drug company developed an oral polio vaccine under Dr. Hilary Kaprowski using tissue from chimpanzees infected with HIV. The drug was distributed in the Belgian Congo and beyond to millions of Africans, and, well, away we go. The medical community did give this one a good look. One of the mysteries of HIV is how did it jump the species barrier. Now, lots of viruses jump the species barrier, but they are essentially the same virus, possibly just mutated enough that the virus can now infect humans as well. For example, a dog with rabies bites you and gives you rabies. You and the dog have the same virus. A chicken with a flu virus sneezes on you, and you get the flu. But you and the chicken both have the same virus. And one of those crazy Ebola monkeys bites you, and you get Ebola. You both have Ebola. But unlike finding the same virus in dogs and in humans, or the same virus in chickens and humans, we don't find HIV in monkeys although we find it in humans. We do find SIVs, uh, simian immunodeficiency viruses, that are very, very genetically similar. So the question is, what is the missing link between SIV and HIV, and how did it happen? And as you're aware from creationism, anytime there's a gap, well, that's a gap in which the nut bars can pour anything, and they do. So coming back to the HIV-polio vaccine link, The medical community did study this one as the timing and geography were close enough as to warrant a hard squint. The whole issue first came to light when a researcher by the name of Louis Pascal, uh, probably no relation to the mathematician or maybe even Louis Pasteur, submitted a paper to Nature making the connection. Nature rejected the paper because the epidemiology of HIV did not match what was claimed in the paper. Instead of getting better evidence, Pascal claimed nature was sentencing people to death and took his story to a journalist for Rolling Stone magazine, Science by Press Release. Rolling Stone wrote an article claiming Dr. Kaprowski was pretty much the father of AIDS. Kaprowski sued, and Rolling Stone printed a retraction. Another journalist, Edward Hooper, took up the cause and published the claim in the 1999 book The River. That might not have been a Leo DiCaprio movie. Given the increasing attention and the off-chance that the hypothesis was right, major journals like Science and Nature began to take a serious look. Despite what Jenny McCarthy claims, people in the vaccine world really do bend over backwards to ensure the safety of one of the single most important advances in human health in recorded history. The ultimate problem with the oral vaccine hypothesis came down to, one, timing, two, genetic evidence. Regarding timing, the earliest HIV sample is from 1959 and predates the polio vaccine. And the best evidence indicates HIV originated in the 1930s, uh, not during the Reagan era. Regarding the genetic evidence, if you compare SIV-infected chimps in the Belgian Congo with HIV, the two are not a close match. Hence, if HIV got into the vaccine, there's no chance it could have mutated into HIV. In essence, there's no chance your cousin can be your father, unless you're from Nova Scotia. But as we all know, just because nature and science bury a claim under an iceberg of evidence, science and cold logic, doesn't mean a great conspiracy story will die. Hells no. It's much easier to digest, Oh, didn't you know evil rich white men are putting things in pills to kill you? And then they'll take your oil and manganese? Instead of, well no, just examine this weighty genetic evidence in these impenetrable scientific papers and um, what are you doing with that pistol? The upshot is people in Africa, including influential clergy, really think the campaign to eliminate polio, like we eliminated smallpox, is a genocide. And worse, people on this side of the pond are starting to generalize it to all vaccines have bad stuff in them. Big Pharma knows it and they like it. I'm not so young that I don't remember a time when kids around me had measles, scarlet fever, and whooping cough. And my parents lived in a time when whole public places were shut down for fear of polio. We've lived so long without these real fears that now the very, very small risks associated with the vaccines are magnified into big fears. Now, granted, when something like smallpox is eliminated or so nearly eliminated from your hemisphere of the world, you, you can honestly rationalize that a one-in-a-million chance of a vaccine causing harm outweighs the one-in-a-billion chance of getting, you know, say, scarlet fever. Given that, the medical community will honestly eliminate the vaccine from the schedule. Oh, sorry, let me use the American schedule. All right, before I bid you adieu, l- let me state what it would take for me to abandon my belief that HIV causes AIDS. And the falsification has been proposed by Duisburg himself. Duisburg offered to inject himself with a needle full of HIV-infected blood to prove HIV is harmless. Seems a fair test. So, if three HIV denialists all injected themselves with blood that has been tested HIV positive and two out of the three don't come down with AIDS symptoms, I'll happily abandon my beliefs. Oh yeah, did Duisburg ever inject himself with HIV-tainted blood? Well, Despite offering, he later claimed he couldn't, as this would violate ethics on human experimentation. Now, seems to me that didn't stop the guy who won the Nobel Prize for demonstrating H. pylori causes stomach ulcers. He drank some H. pylori, got stomach ulcers, and then proceeded to cure himself with antibiotics. Some Australian scientists, led by a Frank Fenner, wanted to release. Uh, this is a hard one my my virus into the rabbit population to control the rabbit problem that was, uh, I guess, infecting Australia a number of decades ago. To ensure the virus would do humans no harm, the three scientists all injected themselves with the virus before it was released into the wild. Now that's balls. Of course, one HIV denialist actually did this, or maybe, or sort of. Dr. Robert E. Wilner. A doctor, Robert E. Wilner, reportedly injected himself with what he claims was HIV-tainted blood. Now, there is some dispute whether or not he injected himself, i.e., you know, shot a good load of HIV-tainted blood into his bloodstream, or merely pricked himself with a needle that had been exposed to an HIV-positive person. Merely pricking himself would carry a lower risk. And, of course, uh, there does not appear to be any corroborative test of the blood or the needle to determine if it was really infected. Anyway, no matter, Wilner died six months later with a heart attack, which, of course, is not one of the symptoms of AIDS. So, if you email me and take a contrary position on anything I've podcast about, please make clear in your email what evidence it would take to convince you to abandon your position. If you can't articulate that, then uh, we can't hope to talk science, or even rationally. Alright, thanks again for sticking with this podcast. I'm Carl Mamer, your conspiracy skeptic, and I'm out to enjoy the summer sun.